Welcome to The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams. And I'm Kirk McElhern. Hello, and welcome once again to The Next Track. This is episode number 68, and today we are happy to welcome our friendly neighborhood digital music specialist, Andy Doe, to the show in the first of a two-part discussion on what we're calling Hi-Fi Snake Oil, We'll be talking mostly about cables in this first part, and then in a few weeks we'll have part two, and we'll talk about other devices and rituals. Andy, how are you doing? It's great to see you again. I'm good. Thank you for having me back on the show. This week we wanted to talk about, and I'm going to use a loaded term here, hi-fi snake oil. There is exaggeration and trickery in a lot of areas, but hi-fi seems to be particularly exposed to this with people trying to sell things that have no value or trying to explain to you that adding a certain element to your hi-fi system is going to make it sound so much better, whereas it may not make that much of a difference. We don't really mean this episode to be critical of people who do buy this stuff. I mean, I understand about the whole gear acquisition syndrome thing, as they call it in photography. You know, you've got a hobby. You want to spend money to get more stuff. But some of these things just really stand out as being a bit ridiculous. Let's start with the biggest target. The one thing that probably provokes the most discussion and debate and is probably the first thing that a hi-fi dealer will try to sell anyone getting into hi-fi after they've bought their components is cables. You need cables to connect your audio source to your amplifier, to your speakers. You need cables to go into the power plug in the wall. And there are all sorts of beliefs about cables, that some cables are better and that cheap cables are no good, and that very, very, very expensive cables are very, very, very much better. How can we see through this fog of contradictory ideas about cables? Well, I think it's important to understand what it is cables do and, and what they're for and, and what the various features added to cables really do in the in the real world. So a cable is carrying electricity from one place to another. Uh, and the conductor in the in the cable is going to do that. Some materials conduct electricity very well. Some materials don't conduct electricity so well. And as a result, the signal will get fainter and fainter and quieter and quieter over the length of the cable. So you either want your cable to be made out of a fairly conductive material. Uh, copper is better, is more conductive than the alloy of uh, nickel and chrome that is used in cheaper wires. And gold is very, very conductive. But very, very expensive. But very, very expensive. And not super durable if you keep bending it, not something you can spin into wires. But it also doesn't corrode. So in a wire, you want it to be made out of a material that conducts electricity. You want it to be made out of enough of that material, a thick enough cable, that it can conduct all of the electricity without heating up because because of the internal resistance of the wire and what that means is that the further down the signal path you get the, the more amplified the signal is the thicker the wire needs to be so microphone cables don't need to be very thick because they're only carrying a very very low voltage at a very low current uh, but as you get towards the loudspeakers you need thicker cables but copper mains cable is perfectly good at doing that job so you've got the conductivity then you've got shielding um, sometimes a cable has other wire wound around the outside of it and the the idea of this is to reduce 
the interference in the signal in that in that cable that is caused by electromagnetic radiation, mostly uh, magnetism, changing magnetic fields around that wire. And that's most important. It's only really important in cables that are carrying a signal that will be amplified. And because the, the, the point in that shielding is that any current that's induced by a changing magnetic field, any current that's induced in the wire will be induced in the shielding instead of in the wires carrying the signal, it doesn't really matter what that shielding's made of, so long as it's made out of metal. And what does the shielding do? Does it sort of take that interference and, and spit it out like a ground, or does it just absorb it and dissipate it? That shielding will will be the wire in which the current is, is induced, and that will be grounded at the plug end. And so it'll, it'll just sort of leak away. It'll, be, it, it'll become... It'll become wasted energy that's, that's thrown away rather than joining your music on its route through your, through your system. So for, from what you're saying, it sounds like there is a difference between cheap average cables and $10,000 cables? I think there's a difference between the function of maybe $1 cables and $2 cables. <laughs> If you if you have the shielding around the outside of a cable that is going to carry a signal that will be amplified, then this is important, especially coming from your record player, which has that, or a microphone, which has that, the quietest signal. Uh, to a certain extent, um, the line level signals connecting your various hi-fi components together, shielding can, can be useful there, particularly if they're going to run past a uh, transformer or something with a with a big electromagnet in it, uh, past an electric motor past a big coil of mains cable that you've carelessly left down the back of your rack. And who hasn't done that? Yeah, but right? but equally, the way that relatively inexpensive cables are, are constructed accounts for this by having the ground uh, in, in the, the sheath of the wire so that the, the live signal is carried down the middle and the, the ground is around the outside. So if it's a relatively uh, inexpensive cable, that, that does not mean that it's going to be prone to interference. What it does mean is that you probably shouldn't use doorbell wire to carry the signal from your record player to your amplifier. Doorbell wire is quite often not made of copper. It's made of an alloy of nickel and chrome. The two conductors run side by side, and that's not ideal. But when it comes to the signal that goes to your speakers, it would take something quite spectacular to induce enough interference in that cable to cause the speakers to move in any sort of detectable way. Move in the sense of creating a sound. Yeah, so because you're not amplifying the signal that leaves your amplifier and goes to your speakers, and unless you have active speakers, you don't really need to worry about shielding on your, on your speaker cables. And what's most important about your speaker cables is that they be nice and thick. And so uh, while all the speakers in my house pretty much are active speakers so they have their own amplifiers in them um, whenever i wire up speakers anywhere else i would use ordinary mains cable because it's cheap it's durable it's nice and thick uh it's bendy <laughs> and and just so everyone's clear and for us americans uh, mains cable is what we'd call your basic two-lead electrical cable, like zip cord or lamp cord. That's the same thing, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, because I'll frequently use lamp cord as speaker wire. It's perfect for small speakers. It lays flat, and like you say, it's poseable, it's cheap, it's generally safety rated. Yeah, that's good stuff. I have speaker cables that are probably about an eighth of an inch thick, the copper part. 
Because I've always felt that if you, if you get something that's too thin, particularly if it's a single strand rather than a woven, rather than a bunch of strands like a rope, then there's a possibility it can break. But I've never felt the need to get these really thick speaker cables that some people think are important. Well, I don't know that any of our listeners necessarily do a lot of welding, but uh, you should have a look at the cable that connects an arc welder to its mains outlet. This is about the largest amount of electricity that you can get out of a socket without damaging the socket. And um, it's certainly much, much more electricity than you are getting to or from your speakers. And there is no sense in buying speaker cables that's bigger than that. When, when people talk about these cables and when they write about them, they they explain that they've added a cable to their system and all of a sudden everything sounds better. There's better definition and soundstage. It just doesn't seem like it makes a lot of sense that a simple cable could make a noticeable difference like that. Well, I think the important way to look at this is that if there is any purpose in making a change to your hi-fi system, that change will be perceptible. And if it is perceptible by humans, then it will also be measurable. And when you buy studio equipment, its performance specifications are, are, are set out in, in measurable ways. And if the new model is better than the old model, they'll tell you that the new model has lower total harmonic distortion or a lower signal-to-noise ratio. Yeah, we never see, we don't see that for speaker cables and and interconnect cables. But yeah, you see, you don't you don't see that for speaker cable. You don't see it for interconnect cables, and 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 the reason for that is because they are not able to point to a measurable difference that that this makes. And before anybody says that there are differences that you you can't measure, these are cables to carry electricity. The minimum unit of electricity that is measurable is a single electron. You can measure electrons one at a time in and out of the wire. And under some circumstances, I think now the internet has enough people who don't understand quantum physics talking about quantum physics without me joining them. But I understand that it has under some circumstances been possible to measure a fraction of an electron's worth of charge. So certainly there is there is no plausible claim that... A wire can affect the sound coming out of the speakers in a way that is perceptible by humans, but not measurable. And I think if somebody is, is making a claim about the performance of, of something as simple as a cable, which should pretty much have coming out one end, exactly what went in the other end, then they should be able to produce, produce measurements to back that up. And if their claim is something other than an improved signal-to-noise ratio, reduced distortion, uh, lower resistance in the wire, a reduced capacitance of the wire. If if their claim is something other than these measurable things, then I would be extremely sceptical. Um, and I, I've said this before on, on this podcast. No piece of equipment is going to put, put detail into a recording that was not already there when the recording was made. And when we make records, we use miles and miles of ordinary copper wire between the microphones and the, the recording gear. And that's an interesting point because you'll often see people writing about cables saying how 
the vocals sound more lively or the sound is more spacious. But a cable can't affect a part of the sound. It can't make the cymbals brighter or the bass guitar brighter. It doesn't affect the frequency response. A more expensive cable is really, at, at a minimum, it has better resistance. But that isn't changing the sound well, if it, if it did affect the frequency response, then you'd be able to measure that. Exactly. And a cable that affected the frequency response would be not so much a cable and more an equaliser on which all of the knobs have been stuck in a single position. And that would be a really strange thing to add to the signal path. So I, I would be tempted not to buy a piece of equipment that, that claimed it could do that most of the time though those sorts of claims about what it does to the sound of individual instruments and how this thing makes the drum skin sound more taut which is a change you can make by making the drum skins more taut incidentally <laughs> um and you know that's a thing we might really do in the studio but it, it's it's not a thing you can do with changing the cables after the record's been made it, it's it's too late for that uh you know, somebody saying that it, it, it makes a drum skin sound more taut or it, it makes a guitar sound more alive or, or it makes an organ sound more organic, then <laughs> for, the, for the most part, these are descriptions of reviewers who are trying to think of something to say rather than the manufacturers of, of these devices. But the manufacturers are backed into a little bit of a corner by the law over what they can and cannot say in their, in their advertising. So they're kind of relying on the reviewers to create the fanciful descriptions pretty much so they don't have to make fanciful claims. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a free speech versus trace descriptions issue. Um, the reviewer, as a journalist, can write something that's totally untrue and then accept money for advertising products next to it. Whereas if you're, uh, if you're making a product and selling a product, then you are not allowed to simply make up lies about it. Although... You know, audio is not the only industry where where this is done. And you know, when when you invited me to come on this podcast, uh, the way you described uh, the show was was uh, audio snake oil. And I think that's a really important analogy to draw, because until really relatively recently, almost everything that the medical profession did was without a basis in evidence. And as a result, um, from the time of uh, Hippocrates until really the early 20th century, the medical profession did considerably more harm than good to to its patients. And it was only with uh, with the invention of antibiotics and, and the understanding of the germ theory of disease that doctors were able to do more good than harm. But there was a firmly ingrained culture of selling medicines and treatments that didn't work and people accepted them people accepted them one because they were very keen to have something they were desperate and two because the placebo effect is a sort of software bug in our brains that makes us perceive differences where there there is no physical mechanism to cause them and to attribute those changes to a particular cause. I was just going to bring up the placebo effect, which is the commonality between the two examples here. 
When someone spends a thousand dollars for cables, they have a vested interest in finding that those cables make the music sound better, and they will be very likely to believe that's the case. And they may believe, they may truly believe that this is the case, and they may actually get more enjoyment out of them because of this placebo effect and because of trying to justify their expense. But as you say, if it's not measurable, it's nothing more than a placebo effect. Absolutely. And the placebo effect is, is alive and well in medicine, just as it is in audio equipment. So I'm thinking back to power cables, or as you say, mains cables. If I buy a $5,000 amplifier, why would I think that the power cable that's connected to that amplifier isn't good enough for the amplifier and go out and spend, say, another $1,000 on a cable just to connect that amplifier to the wall? Wouldn't the amplifier manufacturer provide the cable that is appropriate for the amplifier? I would very much hope that somebody spending £5,000 on an amplifier would get with it everything they could possibly want to make that amplifier really sound great and if it is supplied with a mains cable that that mains cable would meet the necessary specifications for that amplifier to work entirely as the manufacturers intended particularly when you consider how easy it is to make a mains cable that is going to work properly you know lots of things that are not expensive come with mains cables that do their jobs really really well and the mains cable's job is really not hard. So so I think I think mains cables are a particularly particularly egregious example of audiophile equipment manufacturers getting carried away with their own BS. I mean you got you gotta think think about this from uh, an a posteriori perspective, um the measurable difference in what a mains cable does would be the difference between the electricity going in one end of the cable and coming out the other end of the cable. And wouldn't that electric, if not, so you're saying if 100 units of electricity went in one end and 98 came out the other end, there's two other units of electricity that are going to be building up somewhere. And from what little I remember of physics, that electricity would be converting to heat, right? Yeah, that's right. That, that power cable with those specifications is going to burn your house down. Uh, but uh, you know that that's that's an inefficient light bulb. That's that's not a power cable. But thinking about it from an a priori perspective, you know what do we imagine a power cable would do? You know what do we imagine a power cable would do? Well, it's going to deliver electricity from the plug to that amplifier, and it's going to continue doing the job of all of the other wires that have connected the power station to your house and the fuse box in your house to the to, to the plug socket. And it does seem like a bit of an odd idea that those last couple of feet of cable are are going to add anything magical to this electricity this flow of electrons that has traveled so far already. It, apparently it's a thing in Japan for people to buy their own utility poles with power transformers. So that would be taking the high voltage down to whatever it is, 230 or 120. So in that case, they've realized that the mains cable isn't enough and, and the house wiring isn't enough, then they have to get beyond that to get the purest possible electricity. Well, you, you, have, to, you have to wonder um, if among those people in Japan who have their own private utility poles, whether there's there's an extremist subset 
who have decided that this is not enough and what they really need is their own pylons leading all the way to the power station. They need their own power stations. But, of course, it is completely true that other things plugged into the same power circuit can have an effect on your audio equipment. But isn't that the point of the transformer inside the amplifier to clean all that up? It seems like it would be reasonable. If you paid five grand for an amplifier, you'd kind of want it to do the job of the uh, the 200-pound power conditioner. It seems reasonable to expect that it, it would not be defeated by something as trivial as being in the same building as a refrigerator. But but occasionally, occasionally you do have these problems. And uh, you know, just just today, before we started recording, we were talking about the uh, the hum that was appearing on on the audio that that I record when I'm on the show, and it turned out to be a result of two different things: one, uh, a dimmer switch in my office that was past its best, and the other being the refrigerator that sits in in the corner of my office. And these these are the two obvious culprits. When you have a humming sound or a buzzing sound coming out of your coming out of your speakers, the most likely causes of this are dimmer switches which work by rapidly switching on and off the power as the uh, as the alternating current alternates so as to leave the light switched on for a fraction of the of the cycle. And uh, they can cause interference through the power cables, but also uh, refrigerators, because they have electric motors in, those electric motors can, can cause little jolts in the power as they switch on and off. Uh, when you switch them on, they take a big gulp of electricity. When you switch them off, they momentarily kind of generate a little bit of electricity back into the circuit. And these two mechanisms, fridges and dimmer switches, are two things you you want to look at. Uh, they can cause cause problems. Neither of these problems will be eliminated with the use of the majority of the fancy audiophile mains cables, which will simply very expensively carry 240 or 120 volts from your wall socket into your into your hi-fi. And while we're on the subject of mains cables, I've seen it recommended that uh, audiophiles in the US should use things called uh, hospital-grade outlets in 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 their home now a hospital grade outlet is is a real thing and uh, listeners in the uk and europe may be a little confused by this uh, they have the same kind of electricity in american hospitals but because the american power sockets are uh, they're, they're a little flimsy compared with the english ones and they do have a habit of falling out the wall in a way that the english and european plugs just just don't they once you've pushed them in, they're, they're going to stay in. There is a, a separate specification for a hospital-grade outlet uh, where you have to pull it harder to get the plug out. It's really designed so that people's life support machines don't accidentally come unplugged. And I can think of places in the house where it would be useful to have appliances that wouldn't accidentally come unplugged. But uh, I would consider plugging my, my computer and my freezer into, into one of these. Uh, before I plugged my amplifier into one, because really n nothing terrible is going to happen if someone trips over the cable. So there's one other area in cables that really stuns me, and this is audiophile USB and Ethernet cables. Uh, I'll have a link in the show notes to an article, uh, part of my series called How Hi-Fi Magazines Write About Cables, which initially started about cables and then veered off into some of the other hi-fi snake oil elements we see. And 
AudioQuest makes a cable that can be $1,200 for one and a half meters. This is an Ethernet cable. According to them, I'm reading something that AudioQuest says, all dielectric, in parentheses, insulation slows down and smears the signal traveling inside the conductor. And when insulation is unbiased, it slows down different frequencies at different energy levels by varying degrees. This is real problem for time-sensitive multi-octave audio and a significant distortion mechanism for all audio cables, digital or analog. Now, I look at that and my initial thought is WTF. There are no different frequencies in Ethernet cables. A digital cable transmits what's called packets, which is a, a fixed length of data of, of bits of ones and zeros, which are pulses either on or off. The cable doesn't know that it's multi-octave audio. It doesn't know that it's audio. And the Ethernet protocol has an error correction system built in. So if a packet comes and it's unreadable, it goes back to the sender and says, please send this packet again. Absolutely. And all of this data is being delivered considerably faster than is necessary for the audio to be played back. So there's plenty of time before the audio is played to say, hang on a minute, what was that you just said? I didn't get that last packet. And that gets that gets sent again. And it is it is fine. There is there is no physical explanation for how that would make it sound better that stands up to even the slightest amount of even half informed technological scrutiny. But there's more, and it makes it sound very impressive. AudioQuest's patented DBS. I'm not sure exactly what the DBS is. I think it's a dynamic something. I think we all know what BS stands for. <laughs> Creates a strong and stable electrostatic field which saturates and polarizes or organizes the molecules of the insulation. Saturated or full insulation absorbs less and therefore releases less out-of-phase energy. Minimizing nonlinear time delays results in clearer sound emerging from a blacker background with unexpected detail and dynamic contrast. Now, this sounds to me like someone created an algorithm for buzzwords and stuck them together to make sentences, because it, it all sounds very convincing if you don't think about what it means. Yeah, all, I mean, all, all I can say is that we, we don't do any of this stuff when we're making the records. <laughs> I mean, I, I, honestly, I haven't a clue what that means. I suspect it doesn't mean anything at all. <laughs> Uh, but we we don't do any of this stuff when, when we're making the records. And if you look at the materials that go into other extremely sensitive applications, if you look at the the cables that go into measurement and test equipment, if you look at if you look at the sensors in the Hubble Space Telescope, if you look at if you look at the wiring on the Large Hadron Collider, these are these are projects done on absurd budgets where accurately receiving information is the entire purpose of this multi-billion dollar project. And they do not use any of this crap. Okay, we're going to end it there. Andy, thanks for joining us. This was part one of our episode about Hi-Fi Snake Oil. We'll be back in a few weeks with part two, where we'll talk about things other than cables, such as, just to give you a teaser, such as magic rocks, tuning sticks, and audiophile shelves. Thanks again for joining us, Andy. Thanks, it's been fun. Let us now tell you about our next tracks. Kirk, what album are you going to be listening to? The iTunes Store and the iTunes Music Store have definitely helped me discover different types of music over the years. Back in the early days when there wasn't a lot of music on it, I would browse through some of the different genres and I'd discover some interesting things. And, and one of them was 
an artist called Iron and Wine, which is the stage name of a singer named Sam Bean. He sang this sort of lo-fi folk music, just sort of him and his guitar, and the early albums sound like they were recorded in his living room. A lot of them were on sub-pop records, and the, the first couple of albums, The Creek Drank the Cradle, Our Endless Number Days, and The Shepherd's Dog were beautiful. It's just beautiful acoustic folk. Brings you back to the 70s, and I, and I hate to make it sound like it's nostalgic music. And I, I've, I listened to these albums over and over and over again. And then he took a different direction. He played with this band, Calexico, and he had this sort of up-tempo rock music. And when you get to know a singer-songwriter for doing singer-songwriter music with an acoustic guitar and all of a sudden it's rock, well, it kind of gets uninteresting. Now, I ignored him for years. He's released a number of albums since then, and just recently on Apple Music, For You recommended that I try out his new album called Beast Epic, which is again back on Sub Pop Records. And he returns to his classic singer and guitar arrangements with these beautiful haunting melodies and perceptive lyrics. It's a lot more produced than the early albums. There are lots of instruments behind him, and the, and the production is very clean and all that. And I've only listened to it once, so this is really something that I will be listening to right away because he just has a sound and a voice and a tone that I really like. So it's Iron and Wine, Beast Epic. What about you, Doug? I went back to something uh, I used to listen to a lot, too, uh, which for reasons I'm not sure of, I haven't listened to in a while. It's Big Audio Dynamite's number 10, Upping Street. And if you don't know, Big Audio Dynamite, or BAD, or BAD, was the band that Mick Jones formed after The Clash broke up. And this is their second album, which includes co-production and co-writing credits for Joe Strummer. He must have showed up for a few tracks. And you can definitely hear his influence, really, throughout the album. Big Audio Dynamite was able to combine elements of rock and funk and hip-hop and dance with minimal instrumentation. And they also used found video objects, little video drop-ins, uh, thanks to the participation of member Don Letts, who is a filmmaker. It was very unusual for a video guy to be a member of a band back then. seems kind of normal now. The song I think most people may know from this album is Come On Every Beatbox. It's sort of a takeoff on Eddie Cochran's Come On Everybody that invites all the gangs to an urban music and dance party festival. I still have the 12-inch remix of that, too. It's called Bad Rock City, and that was pretty much just the movie samples in the Lynn drum machine from the song, and it's uh, included on the CD and the digital versions now. Anyway, I'm not always a big fan of what Mick Jones is up to. For instance, I don't like the Clash songs lost in the supermarket and train in vain very much. But this album and the next two Big Audio Dynamite releases I think are really their best. Big Audio Dynamite, number 10 Upping Street, is my next track. This has been The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. You can find show notes and links to some of the things we talked about in this and other episodes at thenexttrack.com. There's also a contact form there you can use to send us comments. If you like the show, we hope you'll subscribe in iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And please think about giving us a review or rating. We'd appreciate that. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time.